Welcome to Port City Politics. I'm WHQR News Director Ben Schockman. And I'm Michael Pratt. And on this episode, we're going to talk about some recent developments in an interesting assault on a government official case here in Wilmington, check in with the General Assembly, and talk about uh, illicitly acquired pornography. But let's before we get to that, let's start here at Wilmington. All right, so let's talk about the fentanyl story that you recently had. This was in regards to a press release and subsequent arrest or arrest and subsequent press release that we got in Wilmington when I was still at WECT. This was at the very beginning of January. We got a press release from the New Hanover County Sheriff's Office saying they were shocked and appalled. And the press release was a little vague. And the press release never actually said what happened, but it implied that there was a traffic stop that the, the suspect had thrown the drugs out of the window and that uh, three members of the sheriff's office, uh, a detective and two deputies, had gone to the hospital after being affected by a powerful opioid. They didn't say fentanyl, but we all were kind of thinking it because that's usually the most powerful opioid that's, that's available on the streets. Um, now, the next day at the first appearance, uh, a prosecutor made this much more explicit that the suspect deliberately opened a bag of drugs and threw it at at the detective. So that's the story we had back in January. Right. And so this kind of goes back to the bigger discussion. And as you mentioned, it wasn't explicitly stated fentanyl or carfentanyl or heroin or whatever sort of opioid. But there are a lot of synthetics out there. And honestly, trying to keep up with all the different variations of fentanyl is um, difficult in itself. Uh, But these are very, very powerful opioids. And when we got this press release, um, I think you and I had both independently posted on Twitter, like uh, like a New York Times article or something like that, that says, like, what's going on with all the, you know, police videos showing people getting hit or, you know, being exposed to opioids. We'll just use the umbrella term opioids. But for the most part, we're talking fentanyl or carfentanyl, which is, you know, even more potent. very extremely addictive and dangerous drugs. Uh, But we're seeing, you know, from San Diego all the way to Florida, we're seeing videos and instances like this where officers, it's typically almost explicitly law enforcement officers that are having these reactions to opioids. And basically, you know, the the officer or the deputies and detective at uh, in New Hanover County, Correct me if I'm wrong, but they were given Narcan and taken to the hospital um, and they were, you know, in their mind, uh, showing symptoms of a drug overdose. Right. Yeah. And um, and so a couple notes on this. Yeah. It was the detective who was given Narcan. And uh, we've seen some people suggest in the comments that maybe the Narcan made him sick. If you administer Narcan to someone who's not having an overdose, just if someone walking down the street, it has no effect. Um, except that you might get a little bit like if it actually will, I believe, counteract some endorphins because those are endogenous morphines. Those are, you know, those are opioids. (laughs) But in general, like you can't make, you can't, you know, it's not like a countervailing force. You can't make someone sick by giving them too much Narcan. So I don't think it was that. And I want to be clear, we don't know, right? We don't know whether or not the substance this person threw was fentanyl or a powerful enough opioid to cause this. We don't know. We don't have any access to medical records from the detective. We don't know what happened. What we do know is that uh, this was on in early January. I think it was actually January 6th, 2023, uh, when this mm-hmm. incident happened. Um, in April, right, investigators finally went and talked to this detective. In April, so four months later, 
they went and talked to him. And this is after this person had been arrested. It was after his bond hearing, which, right. uh, you know, gave him a $5 million bond. It, and, and included in that bond was charges of, I believe it was four charges, of assault with a deadly weapon on a government official. So four months later, they finally got around to inv- to actually asking the, the alleged victim of this assault by bag of drugs. And he said, oh, no, that's not what happened. He said he didn't, you know, he didn't intend to throw it at me. Uh, and so they dropped those charges. And I, I do want to be clear that this suspect and another woman who was in the car are still facing a, a whole bunch of drug trafficking charges. Um, so yeah. <laughs> they're not off the hook for that. But it, it's... It's not to, number one, it's not a pro-illicit drug, you know, uh, piece here that we're talking about. And it's also not to uh, embarrass law enforcement or, you know, make it make a show of, you know, pointing out the the fallacies, honestly, of of some of these reports that we've been seeing. Um, And I actually did a there's been a lot of reporting in Wilmington and New Hanover County and the country as a whole. Um, about this, but this prevailing narrative continues uh, that a little bit of exposure to fentanyl or other synthetic opioids is going to uh, can potentially put you into an overdose state. Um, and that's not healthy for anybody to actually believe that. Yeah. So I think that's the big takeaway here is that this narrative is still alive and well, and it is extremely stressful for law enforcement officers. And again, you got to imagine. You, this was part of a joint task force that involved uh, the State Bureau of Investigation and the FBI. So mm-hmm. they consider this guy to be a serious criminal. You're approaching a car. This is a situation where gunfire happens, where, I mean, suspects get killed, police officers get killed. That is a high-tension situation. Yeah, and absolutely. And you add on top of that this expectation that, you know, there is this toxic, deadly magic dust that if it gets near you, it can kill you, even though there's all the vast majority of the evidence um, points in the other direction. So that's that's kind of what we're looking at there. The last thing I will say about this real quick is that in many other states, um, and if you, you've seen videos from these other states, you are seeing police video, you're seeing body cam footage, you're seeing dash, right. like, you know, dash cam footage. That can't happen in North Carolina because of our extremely restrictive laws around uh, police video evidence. You would have to wait for this case to be completely finished, which at the going rate could take years. And then you would have to basically sue the uh, New Hanover County Sheriff's Office in court, uh, in Superior Court, to release that footage and, and convince a judge that this was not just a purient interest, that this had you know real social value to see this tape so we could see what actually happened. So mm-hmm. for people who are like, well, what, what did the tape show? We don't know, and it'll take years for us to find out. And that's very frustrating as a journalist, but that's where we're at. Yeah, that is just just sometimes it be that way. And that's how it be in North Carolina. Yeah. So, so speaking of laws in North Carolina, let's uh, let's take a trip to the General Assembly. Oh, man. All right. So we've been covering the General Assembly a good bit over the past six months or so. We've talked about it a good bit on uh, on the podcast. So there's a few bills that have, you know, kind of kept my eye on as well. Uh, there, Obviously, we've talked about the bigger bills, talked about the abortion uh, restrictions that were, you know, obviously the governor's was overridden. So that is now law. Won't get into that again right now. There there are previous where we do talk about that. Uh, but one interesting one that we've been looking at is a, uh, a sports betting and horse racing bill uh, that is moving through the General Assembly. It's uh, 
it's gaining momentum here, and I'm not sure. It seems imminent that it, it could likely become law any day now, honestly. Yeah, and th- I mean, this is really interesting to me because every state has its own approach to this. Um, it's it's kind of, it's basically an open secret that you can bet on almost anything, anytime using, um, you know, online offshore betting. I, <laughs> I've been in newsrooms where people have bet on elections. I've been in newsrooms where people have bet on, you know, any any conceivable thing how will the season finale of succession go you know you you can you can bet on it but it's a huge industry and it's you know the argument for this uh, even from conservatives who might be in favor of it are that the state's missing out on a lot of money by by banning it you're basically sending all that business uh, offshore so it's it's fascinating to me cuz north carolina has historically been extremely intolerant of you know vices um, it stands towards alcohol. It stands towards gambling. It stands towards not dancing. That'd be too far. Dancing is legal in North Carolina. But yeah, it's interesting to see North Carolina finally say like, okay, well, maybe maybe we should finally allow gambling. Yeah, and it's. Um, I, I'm sorry. I'm trying to trying to look right now and see what the latest is. I know the Senate was supposed to um, have one final vote. And then it was supposed to go back to the House, I believe, on Thursday. It's Friday as we're recording this. Um, so, again, it, this could very well change by the time we actually publish this podcast. Um, but for all intents and purposes, yeah, uh, it does appear that sports betting will become legal. And the way that this bill is written is interesting to me as well, because as we were talking about, you know, we have um, what, what a lot of people call a sin tax or a vice tax. Um, you and I have joked about it a lot is, oh, we're doing it for the children. Um, we're talking about ABC, the, the liquor profits, the North Carolina state education lottery, um, anything that's seen as a vice, um, specifically in, you know, it's a fairly the historically North Carolina and the rest of the South, very conservative States. Um, so the moral outrage towards things seems to be, when there is something that's morally uh, dubious, I guess, for some people, if they have a I'm, I'm not saying that gambling or drinking are, um, but for a lot of people that that comes down to their own personal morality um, and it's seen as, you know, a sin or as a vice. Uh, but the way that North Carolina has kind of gotten around, I guess, their, uh, uh, the Catholic guilt of all that is to say, OK, we're going to send the profits of these vices to the children. We're going to put it into the public schools and things like that. Oh, yeah. Uh, This bill is a little bit different because it looks like some of the money or most of the money from this will actually go into like colleges and college sports. And I actually talked with the representative, uh, one of the primary sponsors, I believe his name is Representative Sign. very nice guy spoke with him and uh you, you know he was talking about where first of all his his point was people are already betting in north carolina if we don't legalize it we're missing out on a tax revenue here and that's kind of also in the in a similar vein if you're going to take that mentality i think it's worth pointing out that a lot of people are already smoking marijuana too and it's legal in a lot of places and you're missing out on tax revenue. I'll just put that out there because that that argument is also used um, when it comes to legalization of marijuana. Um, but oh. that was, you know, part of the argument. The other side of things was 
we can put this money back into colleges where this, you know, where the funding needs to go. Um, let's be real. North Carolina is a college sports state. We're not, uh, I mean, yes, we have the Carolina Panthers, um, but by and large, it's North Carolina is known for its college basketball. Um, so the assumption is there's going to be a lot of basketball betting going on here. Um, and this money can go back in to fund some of those athletic programs at different universities, which could lift some of the burden off of taxpayers in general. So that's kind of the rationale here. It's a little bit different. It's not going directly to, you know, your local board of education, um, at least at the last time that I looked at it. Uh, but this would also allow you to walk into a, uh, a stadium. Let's say you do go to a Panthers game and go to Bank of America Stadium. Um, there are rules to this. They would have kiosks and in-person, kind of like, I think in, what, New York, New Jersey, they have like, you know, this in Miami, they have the, the horse races where you walk up to the window, place your bets, things like that. This would be a little bit different uh, where you're using these self-service kiosks, basically, uh, and if you've been to Vegas or anywhere that gambling is legal lately and you go to the sports betting, uh, a lot of it is all automated. Now you can do most of it from your cell phone. Um, so that's really what would be legalized. It's not just a free reign for, um, you know, bookies to open shop in downtown. Uh, but, you know, at the venues themselves, there would be some uh, sports bookies and, you know, the kiosks. So that's kind of what we're looking at with with this bill in particular. Yeah. Uh, so another bill, and this is this is silly, but I'm going to talk about it anyway because it's so silly. Because there are so many bills in the General Assembly that we never get to talk about. We we focus on the ones that are going to impact the lives of people, and in spite of that, I still hear from representatives on both sides of the aisle that you know they voted for a bill without reading the whole thing, or that they're it's just so busy. And I think this bill is an example of the reason why they're so busy, because there are so many bills. And this is a bill in the House. Uh, this is actually the second attempt at doing this, Pratt. And you had actually tweeted about this months ago. But it, <laughs> but it's a bill, I think it's it's called uh, To Encourage Healthy Foods in North Carolina Schools or something to that effect. But it only really encourages, and by encourage I mean mandate, and by foods I mean one particular beverage. Yeah, we're talking, of course, about North Carolina. I don't know. They've probably made it that it's our state drink. It is our um, state. With, it is our state fruit. Uh, state fruit. The muscadine grape. The muscadine grape. Now, I will say something in defense of the muscadine grape. The muscadine and scuppernog grapes. Uh, muscadine is a type of scuppernog. Uh, was used to save many of the fine wines around the world. There was a plague that just that was uh, almost destroyed some of the most noble vines in the world. Um, that it's a small parasite, I believe, and it doesn't really. It, the muscadine and scuppernog grapes are pretty much immune to it, so they use those grapes as grafts to save some of the, the the mighty cabernet, the the vintage, the grapes that go into cabernets and stuff like that. Um, so it's not a useless grape. Uh, the juice tastes like grape juice, um, mm. and this bill would require every public school. So we're talking about. Um, like uh, laboratory schools, like DC Virgo, public uh, K through 12 schools, community colleges, and every every sort of uh, instrumental part, incremental part of the UNC system. So all those, you know, little colleges that, that make up the UNC system would all have to have muscadine grape juice available. 100% muscadine grape juice grown, and it has to be part of a, I believe it's called it's a it's a state agricultural program that that 
really focuses on NC-grown stuff. So we're talking about an a, it's a North Carolina product. And okay, so I I have you know I have no problem with a state you know going sort of out of its way to support its own agriculture. But we spoke to Representative Julia Howard, uh, 18-term state representative from Davie County. Uh, by the way, where the the major producer of muscadine grape juice operates naturally <laughs> naturally and uh so we asked her some questions we actually asked all three of the bill sponsors some questions but she was the only one who responded and we asked her you know who lobbied for this we asked if she was concerned about the sugar content of grape because right now <laughs> sugary sodas are forbidden in schools until like i think it's a half an hour after school's out and gram for gram uh muscadine grape juice has more or less a similar amount of sugar compared to like a coke or a pepsi it's, it's a different kind of sugar. It's not as bad for you, but it's still like if the idea is to keep sugary drinks out of school, this is pretty sugary. Um, right. And so we asked her about that. And then we asked her, you know, we asked her some follow up questions. And her initial response was pretty terse. She just said, it's all natural. <laughs> We're like, OK. Uh, <laughs> and we went back and forth a little bit about, you know, the sugar content. That's I think that's a, a not. I don't think she was concerned about that. Um, we did briefly joke that antioxidants uh, help prevent communism. Um I'm not sure if she found that funny, but then we really asked her, like, okay, this what this comes down to is it's a it's a government incentive. There's no money in the budget that helps these schools pay for this stuff. Although she did add a provision that would require distribute that would fund a buyback um, if it didn't get sold. Not sure where that money is going to come from. Uh, the bill doesn't specify it, but this really just comes down to picking winners and losers in the industry. So I I pointed out to Representative Howard that this, for example, does nothing to benefit. Uh, strawberry growers. That's our state berry, if you were wondering. Um, and I pointedly asked her, what would you say to North Carolina's apple juice producers? Because, you know, that's a North Carolina product. Yeah. Uh, given my choice between apple juice and uh, grape juice, I would drink water because I'm a grown-up. But, <laughs> but I, you know, what would you say? Because like, this is, a, this is a, a pretty traditional conservative critique of of government incentive programs, it was one of the main critiques of the film incentive program uh, mm -hmm. that ran for years before it was sunset and then brought back a couple years ago, is that you can't pick one industry over the other and you can inside an industry, you definitely can't pick, you know, it would be, it would be very strange if the North Carolina, you know, General Assembly said, you know, you have to have Coca-Cola in all of our right. schools, you know, Pepsi can go pound sand. So I asked her that, and her response was kind of flip, and she said, you know, oh, yeah, please, go drink an apple juice or an orange juice. It's 20% juice at most, and it's got added sugar. And while that you can find, you know, cheap juices like that, there's tons of 100% apple juice or orange juice on the shelves, and it's actually cheaper than muscadine grape juice. So the, her, her answer seemed pretty disingenuous at the end. I appreciate her talking to us. But I say all of this to point out that this is a very silly bill that appears to benefit pretty much one company from her county who once gave her a pretty small campaign donation. It was like $2,700, which seems like chump change in the, in the world of campaign finance. In the world of big grape juice. In the world of big grape juice. But it just, just the idea that you would have the chutzpah to say every school, and we're talking about thousands of schools, when you add up all of the colleges, the community college, the university colleges, the public schools, the laboratory schools, we're talking about thousands and thousands of buildings that now have to have 100% muscadine grape juice just around in case some kid wants it. Um, it is... 
And, you know, if parents and kids were, you know, coming to school board meetings or petitioning the General Assembly to require 100 percent muscadine grape juice, like we've got to have it. It's like, you know, we need pens, we need papers, we need tablets and grape juice. If that were the case, that would be one thing. And I'd say, oh, what these people really like their grape juice. Cool. But again, you know, I joke about it saying big grape. Um, But really, this does appear to be. Who asked for this bill? That's what you need to ask whenever lawmakers are making laws. Who wants this? Who asked for this? If the answer is one particular company and you're mandating across the state, I mean, yes, it is silly. But at the end of the day, it's also going to cost taxpayers money. And that is, you know, just one of these things that people look over and, you know, I tweet about it. It's funny, you know, oh, big grapes got got her in their pocket, you know. I'm being, you know, uh, I'm making light of a very absurd bill because in uh, absurd in the sense of what the definition of the word is that just, you know, you wouldn't really expect this. Um, But that's actually what's going on. Our lawmakers are spending time lobbying, basically, and creating laws that benefit one particular industry and hiding it behind. Oh, it's our state fruit. Yeah, Um, I will say. Yeah. Um, Republicans universally voted for this in the House. Eight Democrats voted against it, but plenty of Democrats voted in favor of this. There was very little discussion. Uh, Deb Butler from here in New Hanover County was one of the eight Democrats who voted against it. And she basically said to me, look, you know, we're not nutritionists and, (laughs) you know, we're not educators. Why? Why in the world are we are we doing this? She she said some of the things you said that this will end up costing taxpayer money. There's no budgetary part of this bill, um, which doesn't explain where, for example, the buyback clause would come be funded by. So, for example, if UNC Wilmington or, um, you know, Wake County Community College stocks up on muscadine juice and no one buys it and we and the state then has to refund the distributor. Where does that money come from? So, yeah. And also that there are there are clearly more pressing issues than this. But it over my here's my question uh, to the fiscal conservatives in in Raleigh. Why? Why in the world would you vote for this? I mean, gee whiz. All right. I've had my fun. Yeah. Let's move on. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, yeah, those are those are kind of the, not the bigger bills, but some of the more interesting ones that have made it through crossover and that are working their way through and look like they might get approval here. Um, other curious question, I would be curious to see if Governor Cooper would have vetoed the Muscadine Grape Bill. Um, that would be an interesting hill to to take a stand on for him. Um, would love to see some discussion on that. Yeah, I want to see a, I want to see a state of emergency over the support <laughs> for the state fruit went in its juice form. Um, all right, so there's uh, we got a, we got a little bit of time left. So you've been following a uh, a nationwide issue here. This has to do with the uh, ATF and um, and short barreled rifles. And then I pr- as promised, we will get to that illicit pornography. Yes. So real quickly, I'll go on to the uh, the ATF. The ATF in January implemented a new rule. Uh, we're talking the Al- the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives, uh, which I guess should make them the ATFE, but still just the ATF. Um, they implemented a new rule about uh, regulating what's known as a stabilizing brace for pistols. Now, Pistols and rifles are both firearms. They're, you know, pretty much the two main types of firearms. We're not going to get into cannons and other, you know, weird types of weapons. Uh, but the two main types of firearms, you have 
long guns, which include shotguns and rifles, and then you have pistols or handguns. Uh, your pistols can, you know, encompass a number of different things. Most people think of either uh, a revolver, Dirty Harry style, or, you know, uh, what a law enforcement officer carries, a Glock, something to that degree. There are other types of pistols out there um, that look remarkably similar to rifles. They're basically miniature forms. Uh, so, for example, you have the AR-15 platform, uh, but you have an AR-15 pistol, which looks like a, a miniature AR-15 rifle. But it's not. It's considered a handgun because it's meant to be fired from the hand. Now, the definition of what a handgun and a rifle is, uh, long story short, handgun makes sense. You fire from the hand. Uh, a rifle is a weapon, a firearm that's meant to be shot while braced against the shoulder. Rifles have much better accuracy than handguns. Uh, that's due to the length of the barrel and the ability to stabilize it against your shoulder. So about 15 years ago or so, uh, this idea, this brace was was invented. Um, and I'm sure there were people doing it before, but they came into mass production more than 10 years ago. Um, they're called pistol braces. And a lot of these come back to um, the AR-15 or uh, you got the AK-47. We're not always talking about, you know, handguns like like a Glock pistol. We're talking about uh, other platforms of pistols, um, which include those that look remarkably similar to their larger long, uh, long gun counterparts. Um, so basically what these do, you put a brace, you attach a brace to these to these guns, and they do have them for uh, for your Glock, for your regular semi-automatic uh, handgun that most people think about. Um, you strap this contraption onto it, and it basically is called a stabilizing brace, and that's what it does. They were initially made to help uh, disabled shooters be able to fire a AR-style platform. That's kind of where this came from. And what they do is they allow you to mount them to your, uh, they basically strap onto your forearm and they give you some stabilization. Well, people started using these and you, you've modified them when you, with the inventions of uh, 3D printing, you really were able to make a lot of new things. So that's kind of where these came from. And they have gone up in popularity and basically the ATF came in and said, and, and for the record, ATF has has said in the past, these are legal, um, but they have changed. They've done an about face on this reverse course and said, no, if you're utilizing a stabilizing brace that because you can do a lot of things with anything, you can hip fire a shotgun if you want to. You're, you might break a wrist, um, but you can hip fire it similarly with a pistol that has been braced you can fire it from the shoulder and it that's the style and that's what the definition of a rifle is is that long gun meant to be fired from you know a shoulder stabilized position um so the question is now if you add you know these little components to this firearm does it suddenly make a pistol a rifle and you know that's the question when is a pistol not a pistol well when it becomes a rifle and also when the atf decides which is kind of at the heart of the problem i spoke with uh, grassroots NC, President Paul Vallone. Uh, they are a pretty conservative Second Amendment rights group, but they also um, push for other 
other issues. But by and large, I've spoke with them strictly on gun related issues because that does seem to be where they lobby the most. Um, and the big concern for gun rights advocates uh, with this new rule, because basically the ATF came in and said, if you're using a stabilizing brace, that is now considered a short barreled rifle. And you have a few options. A short barrel rifle is a rifle with less than 16 inches of barrel. Um, the idea behind this, and I'm sure you've all heard of sawed off shotguns, is the same thing. Uh, when you have something that can be concealed and cause that much devastation and destruction, it's not to say that handguns don't cause death as well and injuries, uh, but they are, you know, only accurate within, you know, 10 yards or so. I mean, really, you have to be in close quarters to effectively use a handgun. Well, when you're able to take a handgun and make it more accurate with a short barrel, meaning you can conceal it um, like your Omar from the wire in your trench coat, uh, that's when it becomes a bigger concern for people. Uh, and the ATF in particular and the Joe Biden administration put this rule into ask, ask the ATF to revisit the rules regarding these. And long story short is on June 1st. So yesterday, as we're recording this on the 2nd, the new rule is starting to be enforced. It went into effect January 30, uh, January 1st and went into effect 120 days later. So we're talking June 1st. If you have one of these stabilizing braces attached to your handgun, you are now in possession of a short-barreled rifle, which have been, uh, since the 1930s, heavily regulated. We're talking times of Al Capone, um, when the ATF came and created the, and Congress legislated the National Firearms Act. These have been very, very heavily regulated for previous reasons stated. Uh, but the issue and the concern for people is you've said these are legal for 15 years, number one. Number two, now all of a sudden people are told they're in possession of an illegal firearm, which is a big no-no. It's a felony. Um, and the third, the third concern is the ATF is basically deciding on a whim, and they did this with bump stocks as well under the Trump administration. This isn't just a... Uh, Joe Biden issue or Democrats in, in control here. Um, the issue is the runaround of Congress. Congress is the one that should make laws. ATF is an enforce, enforcement branch of government. Should the government, should bureaucrats be crafting law that can make you a felon overnight running around Congress? And that's where the, where the big concerns are. Um, and, and, you know, there's a lot of a lot of people will say that's their concerns and things like that, um, whether or not it's just they want these personally and they think, you know, Second Amendment rights are unlimited. That's a different story. But the argument about running around lawmakers to craft law that suddenly makes someone a felon that Congress never signed off on, that's where the concern comes from. So uh, if you are in possession of one of these things, you can either destroy it, turn the gun over to the ATF or before June 1st, you were supposed to have registered it. If not, and you still have these attached to a to a pistol, you're committing a felony now. Yeah. Uh, the only two quick things I'll add is that, um, you know, you, you got to the heart of a question we get a lot, which is the people who assume that it is the caliber and cartridge style that makes the difference between a pistol and a rifle. You know, you're picturing the small, blunt, rounded kind of ammunition that goes into, say, like a Glock 19 versus the, you know, uh, longer, more pointed type bullet that we're used to seeing, you know, a 223 or a 308 
uh, fired from a rifle, but it's it's what you're describing, not that not that cartridge type. Because I've seen AR pistols in in all kinds of you know uh, sort of longer cartridge formats. Uh, so that's thing one. And thing two is uh, this is once again from my point of view, just my opinion, uh, just an indictment of Congress's inability to do anything meaningful on gun control. You get each administration putting together these ad hoc um, executive branch moves, but 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 that in a way that kind of you know takes the spotlight and the pressure and the accountability off of Congress where it should be to pass meaningful uh, gun control regulations. That's it's. I agree with you. It's Congress's job, and they're not doing it. So frustrating. Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of the bottom line there. And we are running short on time. So do you want to get into the illicit pornography discussion? Yeah, let's, uh, we got just a few minutes left, so let's uh, just give us give us a taste of what you're looking at, and maybe we'll catch up with it next week. Yeah, so I'm looking into. Uh, I found some interesting cases on Pacer, which is the federal government's uh, court case filing system. Which, uh, in and of itself, I could go on and on about that how it should be illegal because it costs so much money. Um, but anyways, I was looking up some cases here in the Western District of North Carolina. Uh, this is federal court and found six cases that were against different John Doe's. So I was interested and I'm like, okay, I'll spend the $1.50 per, per packet and figure out what's going on here. And it was, uh, I'm glad I did, um, a pornography company in based out of Delaware is suing in federal court six John Doe's that they are only identified by their IP address for downloading via downloading and distributing via BitTorrent hundreds of pornography videos and they're claiming copyright infringement you know we see this stuff with uh disney or pixar or whatever universal uh companies are very protective of their their uh their intellectual property their ips um and it's no different in the pornography industry it's kind of a you know we laugh about it because of the taboo nature of the the subject and you're like oh well you know, I guess that is piracy when you're illegally downloading porn videos that are, um, you know, that are copyrighted material. Uh, but the again, kind of the absurdity and the, the the comical aspect of this, not to say that it's it's a, a laughing matter, but again, the absurdity of it all. Um, there are six possibly individuals It could be, you know, underground uh, DVD companies that are ripping these videos off and burning them and selling them on the black market. Um, but there are six people or six IP addresses in Charlotte right now that don't know they're being sued for their illegal porn collection. Um, so that is going to be interesting to see how this plays out because the IP addresses, your internet provider address, your internet protocol, uh, you can be traced to that and they can trace it to your home. So it's going to be real interesting to see if and when they finally figure out who these people are and what their reaction is. If it's, you know, some man or woman sitting at their house or even, you know, a teenager who's been downloading hours and hours of pornography, um, suddenly being sued in federal court for illegally downloading pornography. I have to imagine someone is going to get a very rude surprise when that summons or that or that uh, civil notice comes to their house. Yeah, it's just like, how do you explain this one? I mean, again, the the absurdity and the the comic aspect is there. So I'm looking into this. I am uh, I'm gonna follow it. I have a a story on that one, hopefully today as well. All right. Well, we'll have more on that next week. But for now, we will see you next week. All right.